appreciate it. Thank Grant for leading our thoughts on Lord's Supper and Mark uh, in singing. We definitely want to remember those that are traveling, that they have safe trips, a uh, good time with family and friends, and, and hopefully will be returning to us soon. Well, there is no surprise, at least by uh, the passage read this morning, that we're going to talk about the armor of God. I sent the scripture reading to Joseph, and within a moment, he uh, typed back the armor of God. And oftentimes, we take this uh, period to look at the various items listed with armor of God, although I do not believe we have done that here uh, a few years ago, I was involved with a group of preachers that came together up in Dixon, and we each took an item of the armor of God, and they didn't miss number seven. They, they included prayer, and it was a great study uh, for the community in Dixon, and it is, we need to take the time to look at each of those elements. Uh, it is not a stretch to spend an entire lesson on each one. But today I wanted to do something different, something I've been thinking about since that time where I was with them and say, let's step back. Let's ask the question, why do we need the armor of God? And look at biblical examples so that we are more readily prepared every day to put on every single element that is there. If you were following along with Joseph, you notice that it said to put on the whole armor of God. That word panoply, the Greek word there, it means every day. It's not a suggestion, but a command that we put all these pieces on. As we think about Ephesians 6, because it's quoted so often, we often forget about Ephesians 5 that led into uh, this breakdown for the Ephesians of the armor of God. What is in that chapter? Uh, what is in that earlier chapter? And if you were to look through and read, which I encourage you to do, you're going to see that sin prevents uh, an individual from inheriting the kingdom of Christ. And number two, we're not to turn back to the darkness once we are in the light. Because if we do, we are told that we will receive the wrath of God that will be upon the sons of disobedience who partake in sin. So the armor of God is going to help us not fall into this issue that Paul is addressing with the Ephesians. We also, also often refer to, with the armor of God, a passage in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Just like we read the armor of God, and often because it's been said so many times to us, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the uh, sandals of peace, we often when we hear something so often, just push it to the side of the severity and the intensity that is intended. I believe that can happen in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. If we read verse Peter 5 and verse 8 with just a picture of a line that is focused and targeted in, 
not on the strongest, not on that in object that is healthy, fit, in good shape. But if we read this passage and we picture that lion that is targeted on the one that isn't prepared or that is ill, not on his A game, I believe we have a different feeling. That feeling drives actions. Those actions drive us to be more prepared to understand this is not a game. When was the last time that you felt you were battling Satan? Sure, I've heard people and myself say this. It's a battle. We're in a war. But has it changed the way you live? Let's put it another way. Can you point to very specific items in your life and actions that you've taken or decisions that you've made that show how seriously you take this? I mean, armor, it's clunky, it's heavy, it's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. There are a lot of pieces. Some are just for protection. Others are for defense. And then you have the sword. The sword itself is something that requires a tremendous amount of physical and mental training to be effective in the physical world. It is no different in the spiritual warfare that we are fighting. No one has ever seen a warrior run into battle after picking up a weapon for the first time with only a portion of his armor on. That would be unwise. But is this how we approach the battle that we are in? If the wrath of God highlighted for us in Ephesians chapter 5 doesn't send a clear message or the lion analogy in 1 Peter 5 that we read, I want to look at a few examples with you this morning that I hope illustrate for you that lion's face, that battle that we are in, and how relentless Satan is going to pursue those he does not have. The first place I want to go is the four tens. And those all occur in Exodus and Numbers, and we've referenced it not that long ago and went into a lot more detail. So to keep things uh, moving along this morning, these slides and these verse references are all going to be online and accompany this lesson. I encourage you to go back and review them because it is, uh, as we discussed often almost every time we study the book of Exodus. Exodus is the picture book for us and the salvation that Christ brings. And it is a wonderful book that we must uh, remind ourselves and continue to review. So of the four tens, why is this important? Well, let's, let's look at each of them. So the first set of tens are the ten plagues. Those start in Exodus chapter 7 and run through Exodus chapter 12. 
And the first three impacted both the children of Israel and the Egyptians. But then when we get to 4 through 10, we see that there was a distinguishment made between Israel and the Egyptians. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see God work these great signs? I don't know if we can fully comprehend the power that was on display. And as we make our way out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, there were six very special events. Six, not ten. There's a reason I'm referencing them. Of these six special events that take place, they're almost entirely connected to the last ten we're going to discuss. But they were great power displayed in God's care for a multitude of Israelites as they take off and as they journey to Mount Sinai in the wilderness. When we arrive at Mount Sinai, we have our second set of ten, the Ten Commandments. These occur in Exodus chapter 20, and they are extraordinarily critical for um, the commitment that is God is the covenant that God is making with his people. And as God gives a new law to his people, God does it in a powerful way. And we know it was powerful because of how the Israelites responded after God had descended onto Mount Sinai. I do not have it up on the board. Exodus chapter 20 verses 18 and 19 says, states, And all the people perceived the thunderings and the lightnings, the voice of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. So God, delivering the Ten Commandments, did so in a powerful way. So powerful, in fact, that Israel said, do not let God speak with us because we fear for our lives. So from the ten plagues to the six special interactions that occur on the way to Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments that God had with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, I want to ask a few questions. Can you think of any other time in the history of the earth over a period of 6,000 years that any group of people had seen so much power and awe from God? Think about what we've just explored. Over and over again, God is displaying His power. So much power was displayed that the Egyptian Pharaoh lets the children of Israel go without a battle that they had to fight, without a war that had to take place. God was proclaiming His name among all the nations. And we see that with Rahab the harlot who had 
heard the stories, and she and they feared the power of God. Was there any doubt, if you saw any of this, that there is only one true living God? Next, we have our third set of ten. And this involves the twelve spies that we read about in Numbers chapter 3. Sorry, Numbers chapter 13, 31 through 33. And the report that they give back, ten of them. But the men that went up with him saying, We be not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search is a land that is eaten up with inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. These ten spies that do not rely upon God convinced Israel that they couldn't take the land. While the other two, Joshua and Caleb, pleaded with the multitude, believe in God. Think about this. Was the land not everything that had been described and prophesied? It was. It was in the report. Read Numbers chapter 13. It was exactly what had been told. Did the spies lie about what they saw? No, they actually brought back evidence. This was a land flowing with milk and honey. It confirmed the truth. Had God over the previous months failed to show them His power? Was their confusion that God could not do what God had said? Ten plagues, the six major events towards Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai itself. What about God's ability to show that He could defeat a mighty army? Where did they get released from? Egypt, who perished in the sea, the Egyptian army. What about the Amalek fight? But notice the conclusion. They believed the description and the fear of the ten spies. Remember, they still have not seen the inhabitants. They saw the proof that what God said was true. They had not seen the inhabitants. Versus all they had observed and gone through. With this in mind, the ten plagues, the ten commandments, and the ten spies, let's turn over to Numbers chapter 14, and let's read the fourth set of the tens, the ten transgressions. Verse 22 states, Because all these men that have seen my glory and my signs, which I wrought in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet they have tempted me these ten times. So when were these ten transgressions, what 
caused Jehovah's reaction to these people? What did they do against God to be sent into the wilderness? Again, because of time's sake, please go back and reference. There's no uh, uh, specific accounting in the Bible for these ten, but these are ten times that um, the people had sinned, most of them associated with those uh, very special events that occur immediately after leaving Egypt and summed up with the ten spies that do not rely on God. I hope we all can consider from the four tens how effective Satan was during one, God, one of God's most in, intimate interaction with mankind. Any one plague, any one miracle and sign on the way to Mount Sinai, God's presence descending upon the mountain, obtaining information that the promised land was everything that they should have expected. Wow. And yet Satan effectively impacted the vast majority of the people. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, would enter the promised land. This recap, every time we review it with our children or I think about it, causes me to pause. And it reminds me why we need the armor that God has provided and how critical it is every day to put on every piece and not be a novice when Satan comes. In the New Testament, I want us to also quickly think about the life of Peter. A man who observed Jesus firsthand while he was on this earth, stood by, side by side during the miracles and teachings. And there is no doubt, as we'll see, Peter loved Jesus. Peter, in Matthew chapter 14, 28 through 29, left the boat. No one else did. Peter did. Left the boat to walk on the water like Jesus was doing. In Matthew 16, 16, Peter professes that thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And it is in verse 19, Jesus proclaims that Peter is given the keys, meaning it would be Peter to deliver the gospel to the Jews, Acts 2, and to the Gentiles, Acts 10. In John 18, 10, Peter is the one that draws his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Remember Luke 5? When Jesus teaches the multitude from Peter's boat, we had a lesson here recently about this. He tells Peter to cast his net. Peter obeyed and their nets filled two boats. It was Peter in verse 8 who responded when he saw it fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. In Acts chapter 4, after the death of Christ, it was Peter and John being questioned and threatened for even their life when Peter boldly states in verse 10, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel 
that in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even in him doth this man stand before you whole. In many ways, the above sampling of Peter is impressive and encouraging. But Peter, was also, but Peter also teaches and demonstrates in an unforgettable way that Satan never ceases his attacks and wants everyone he doesn't have. Not forgetting what we just read, let's look at a few passages. It was Peter that rebuked Jesus in Matthew 16, 22 for take, talking about his death. And Jesus responded, get behind me, Satan. This was right after his proclamation that Jesus was Christ, the Son of the living God, and the praise that Jesus had for him. Peter in Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14, was being a hypocrite and wouldn't eat with the Gentiles when the Jews came around. Paul had to directly rebuke him for this. In John chapter 18, verses 13 through 27, Peter denied Christ three times, or in John chapter 1337, he said that he would lay down his life for Christ. We saw him at the betrayal take out his sword to fight. But in the court area, he did deny Christ and wept for his sins. The four tens in Peter are just two examples that show each and every one of us just how effective Satan is at introducing sin into our lives. And not just any old general sin. Satan attacks are more individualized. Each of us have weaknesses and strengths. And Satan attacks each and every one in their, his unique way. Remember 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be watchful, your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Satan wants to turn evil, unrighteousness, and darkness into something less harsh in our eyes. When we go back to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11 of our reading, let's notice a couple things. Put on the whole armor of God. As we previously mentioned, this is no suggestion. It's a command. It's not a part. It's all the panoply. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Stand against the wiles, that is cunning arts, deceit, craft, and trickery of Satan. The word wrestling is used. The sword here is referenced as a Short Roman sword. It wasn't the long sword that you may think about um, when you uh, consider a knight and Arthur's round table and they all place the swords on the table. Or uh, a javelin, which sometimes the Romans would use. Or, a, um, or even a samurai sword. But notice the two references of wrestling and the short sword that will be used. This is very close. Satan is attacking an individual based on weaknesses that he may observe. Furthermore, we could go on. 
We could consider Adam and Eve, the thoughts of man before the flood, the Tower of Babel after the flood, Ananias and Sapphira, who did, took something of, that was not required, was not a commandment, and turned it into a sin. David and Bathsheba, Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7 with the ark and it teetering. The Pharisees and their hypocrisy and the list could go on. Since the beginning of time, mankind not only has a tendency to become complacent, we also have a tendency to seriously underestimate Satan's ability to impact our soul. However, by saturating our homes in scriptures, by daily putting on the armor and practicing with the sword of the Spirit, we can win. God has given us the tools. We can win. But God gives us a choice. Joshua chapter 24 verse 15 states, and if it seem evil unto you to serve Jehovah, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that are beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Jehovah. We have a choice to put on the armor of God. We have a choice to read the Bible with our families versus watching TV or engaging in some other uh, social media endeavor. We have a choice to put our children and ourselves into every activity which is made available to us versus making the teaching and learning God the priority. Satan will never stop attacking. Roaring lines are methodical and calculated. Satan doesn't attack when you're fully suited up, training regularly, and in good condition. Consider Israel and the ten times they were tempted. The mighty armor of Pharaoh was chasing them. They thirsted immensely. They hungered and looking at the multitude wonder how any of us could survive. Where would this food come from? They feared they lost their leader Moses and they lost sight that God had been leading them. Or how after months of traveling, the stories of the spies struck fear. Or bold Peter, who spoke strongly without fear, with a sword in his hand, he was ready to fight. But with Jesus gone, did Peter run away like the others? Peter stayed close by. And as he was being accused, he knew what him telling the truth would do and compromised. If we're comfortable in this life, Satan has us. God was, God's ways are going to be foolishness to those on this earth. 1 Corinthians 20, chapter 1, verse 25 and 27 teach us this. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But God chose the foolish things of the world that He might put to shame them that are wise. And God chose the weak things of the world that He might put to shame the things that are strong. And in Second um, Timothy, 
in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. As we conclude, I want us to look at Ephesians 6.18. It is often the forgotten piece of the armor. It's the seventh piece. Let's notice what it says. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We also see this with Jesus and Peter, how important prayer was. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 40 through 44. Matthew 26, starting in verse 40. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, you, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again with their eyes heavy. So he left them and went again and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Jesus, God in the flesh, found it necessary to pray for an event that he knew from the foundation of the world had to occur. This wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a mistake. It was planned. And Jesus went to his father in prayer. He was also honest with Peter. At this time, he had already explained to Peter the saint was going to cause, uh, was going to cause him to deny Christ after Peter had told Christ that he would lay down his life for him. Jesus again is telling Peter, pray. For your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. As we close, I want us all to reflect on the armor of God that has been provided for us to go up against Satan. We are going to end where we started. And it is my hope that as we read this portion of the passage, focusing on the seven different pieces of armor that we have been provided, that we can have a greater appreciation for what God has laid out for us, what God has provided us to defeat Satan and to win. Let's read starting in verse 13 of chapter 6. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Don't leave one single piece behind. Don't not train that you may be able to withstand. Notice with me this idea of standing that's repeated three times. To withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand. Stand therefore, 
this is something that a Roman soldier would very much understand. Stand your ground. Not one weak link. We cannot give. We are to stand. Therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. May we all take the battle seriously. Wake up daily and put on all seven pieces of armor as we fight against Satan and his cunning strategies to try to convict all that he does not have. We offer the invitation for those that have sin in their lives, that have heard the word of God and realized that they need to turn away from the ways of this world and to turn their life to God. We also offer the invitation for needs that you may have, please come forward as we stand and sing.